Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, baby, that brown liquor make my heart go quicker. Welcome to the Leisure Class. I'm your host, Jack Song, a podcast dedicated to turning you on to the good stuff, a gathering place for the many kindred spirits I am grateful to call friends. Musicians, writers, artists, chefs, cocktail wizards, and wine geeks, all members of the Leisure Class. You know, the rains came in today, and man, here in Mississippi, brothers and sisters, it does not rain cats and dogs. It rains cows and horses, <laughs> with the occasional buffalo thrown in. I'm talking biblical rain. The creeks and rivers rise, the bottomlands get flooded, the folks living in those bottomlands find themselves surrounded by fast-rising lakes. It's the kind of rain you can't see out the windows. And my place here in Taylor, Mississippi, population 343 and me, has a tin roof. And it gets loud. I don't mind it, really. I enjoy sitting here sipping my coffee and spending time immersed in one of my favorite activities. Just sitting and thinking about stuff. A bunch of years ago... I read a piece by Carl Jung, the philosopher, psychologist, where he wrote that the journey of our lives is like an arc. That when you're young, we walk the arc upwards with our eyes forward and nothing but endless sky in front of us. Nothing but endless possibilities. There's no end to the upward movement. But when we near the top of the arc, the midpoint of our lives... What lies ahead is an arc that leads downward to an end point. And from that high midpoint, we can look back to see where the twists and turns of our life took to lead us to no other point, but, you know, where we ended up now. You're able to make some semblance of sense how one decision led to another, one event turned into another, and brought us to an unexpected place or an opportunity. And that's something that we just can't see while we're in it. I'm now 67. It's something I find difficult to get my head around. I wake up every morning and think, how the f*** did this happen? I have way more of my life behind me than I do ahead. One of the questions I get asked most often, along with the why Mississippi, which we talked about in our premiere episode, is why did I quit my job and walk away from the corporate world to chase yet another dream to be a writer. And it's a long story, really, but I'm a novelist, not a short story writer, so get comfy. Top off that coffee, and I'll tell you a story. 
In the year 2000, my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He was 66 years old. He was a couple of years into his retirement after working his entire life for Allstate Insurance Company. Working for the man, living the American dream, saving up for the golden years when he and my mother could do all the things folks do in retirement. Travel, learn some new hobbies. My dad would play a lot of golf. They'd eat dinner at 4 p.m. and get the senior discount. That's the picture, right? His decline was painful for the family to witness. Alzheimer's is a horrible disease. Not that there are really any good ones, but it's not a great one. He lived another 13 years, during which his cognitive abilities declined to the point where pretty quickly in, he stopped recognizing family members. It was during that time... Our fabulous healthcare system took every penny he'd save, every penny that he had put away for his golden retirement years before any assistance would kick in. Now, I was 46 at the time, living in Los Angeles. I was raising my twin daughters as a single dad and working as a marketing executive in the musical instrument manufacturing world. By 2006... My father was on the very edge of recognizing anybody and being able to communicate. By this time, I was 52. I was vice president of marketing for the Guitar Center retail chain and making a very nice little six-figure salary. I bought my first house a couple of years earlier, and now I was living the American dream. But I was miserable. Feeling trapped in a world I never wanted to be part of. I never thought that I would end up doing or becoming my dad. I had landed in a place that I'd wanted to avoid my entire life. After living my rock star dream, I never thought I would end up here. Watering my lawn, drinking a beer, barbecuing on the weekends. It all sounds kind of good, but I was not happy. And I, because I had begun to look at my father's demise as a very possible future for me. If Alzheimer's was hereditary, would I get that diagnosis at some point? And I thought, man, if that bullet comes with my name on it, and rather than having chased my dreams and living a life that made me happy, and my legacy (laughs) is I spent my life trying to convince other musicians to buy more gear, I was going to die a very angry man full of regrets. My passion for writing never left me. And I began to rise early in the morning while my girls were still asleep and the house was quiet and I began to write. And I was very happy doing it. I visited my family in Connecticut and sat with my dad, just the two of us, on my sister's porch. He still knew me and he wore a smile as we talked. I explained how I was feeling, how witnessing his situation had brought me to a decision, but I wanted to ask him for his thoughts first. And he just looked at me, studied my face for a few minutes. And when he spoke, he stumbled on the few words that he was able to say, but pointed at me and said one of the last things he was ever able to say to me. You go do what makes you happy. I went back to California quit my job, sold my house, 
a move to Baja, Mexico, with the sole intention of beginning a life as a writer. We are taught this lesson over and over and over in our lives. That life is short. And when someone close to us dies, we take stock. We promise ourselves we'll do better at staying in touch with friends and family. That we'll finally learn how to swing dance or play a musical instrument or travel to wonderful places with our loved ones. We have all these plans and a promise to ourselves to live our lives differently because it is short. But, you know, in time, life intercedes. The lesson gets sort of unlearned because we think, well, there's time to get to all that. No, there isn't. This moment right here, right now, is all we have. The universe cares not for our dreams or plans or anything that we want to do. Those dreams and plans, they reside in our hands, our hands alone. And they're ours to protect and to nurture. So please remember, life is short. So live now, live well, because tomorrow never knows. When I walked away from my job, many of my friends thought I was crazy. They're like, how could I do that? What about the money? What about this? What about that? Others called me their hero, wishing that they could do the same. And yeah, my decision may have been crazy. I was terrified, yet determined. I took a giant leap of blind faith in myself. And looking back, that decision changed the direction of my life and put me on a journey that crossed paths with an incredible array of talented, interesting kindred spirits and brought me here to Taylor. My guest today is one of those kindred spirits here that I am honored to call my friend. When we come back, I talk to Ace Atkins, an award-winning, best-selling crime fiction novelist. He's a friend of mine who made a decision in his life to change course and follow his own passions. I'm Jack Sonny. You're listening to The Leisure Class Brought to you by Newsweek. We're going to be talking with a dear friend of mine today, Ace Atkins, who is an award-winning, best-selling crime fiction novelist. You don't want a tricky premise. You want something that is very simple for people to understand but emotionally, hopefully, has more resonance and more depth to it. He's published close to 30 books in a career that is an inspiration to writers of all genres. His Quinn Colson series, with 11 novels to date, follows the life of a former soldier who returns to become sheriff of his hometown in Mississippi, a place that resembles Oxford and Taylor and the surrounding area. He was also my landlord, handing me the keys to his historic farmhouse in the country down here, where I began to write my novel. Ace is a friend, an inspiration, and a mentor. And he's also a tequila and mezcal lover. Please welcome Ace Atkins. Thanks, Jack. Always good to see you. All right, man. So I just wanted to let our listeners get a little bit familiar with you. And if you wanted to just sort of give me all the David Copperfield crap. Oh, (laughs) start 
Let's all start from the beginning. All the day. <laughs> yeah. I was a street urchin in London. Um, <laughs> you know, I worked my way through uh, things, picking pockets and that kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, well, you were born in the South. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, so I was born in the South, but I, I spent my, my life in a lot of places. Um, I was telling my wife the other day that I think that if somebody was just to look at me through census records, you know, I was born in Alabama. My family from way back before Alabama was even a state lived in that, that area and that territory. And they'd think that I never left. They'd think that I just stayed close to where my home is. You know, where, I, where my family's from is only, you know, 45 minutes to an hour from here. Uh, but my dad was a football coach, worked in the NFL. And so I was born in, in Alabama, but we ended up living many different places in San Francisco and Buffalo and Atlanta, St. Louis. Uh, so it was kind of like uh, being a military brat. We moved all over the place. He was he was a player as well, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he was one of the first guy, early guys playing in the, the AFL. Before that, he was in the NFL, and he never did anything else but, but work in football. His name is? His name, well, he was Billy Atkins, but they called him Ace. And so people okay. always think that I made that up for writing, that I became Ace Atkins as a pin name or something like that. But uh, that is a family name. I did not know that. I that was going to be one of the questions yeah. I was going to ask yeah, he you. Was a, so it's it's on your birth certificate? No, no. I mean, oh, I, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm William Atkins as well, but uh, Ace is the only name I've ever known. But it's funny, the other day I actually ran across something that was uh, something that had been in the, the Associated Press about my dad, and it was a kind of a drawing like they used to do in the, the old stuff in the old sports pages, and it had something on there about Ace Atkins, and it was from you know 1958. So, oh, man, that's great. Yeah, history great. goes way back. Yeah. Where were you when you went to school? Well, it's funny. You know, I always tell people I move around, but, you know, we, we came back to the South pretty quickly. You know, I ended up, I was living in, we were living in St. Louis, Missouri, and then ended up going to Atlanta and living outside of Atlanta when I was a kid and uh, then eventually coming back to, to Alabama. So I went to high school in Alabama. I actually went to high school in Auburn, Alabama. And then after that, um, I tried to escape, but uh, went to college in, in Auburn as well. And, uh, and then ventured into my career as a, as a journalist, which was the, the really the springboard for me of, of being a professional writer. That was, the, that was the, the conduit for it all. But in between that, and it's interesting that you say, you know, I tried to escape it because that's one of the conversations <laughs> that so many of the folks that I know down here in the South, and for me in Western Pennsylvania, was like, how do I get out of here? Yeah. But, um, you know, football was a big part of your life as well. Yeah, I mean, football was huge. I mean, it was, like I said, the only thing that, that um, you know, my dad knew. It was something that, you know, he, he was the first guy in his his family to go to college. And he did that through athletics. And so for me, you know, trying to say, well, I want to be a, you know, a musician or a writer or an actor, you know, was kind of blasphemy. You know, there was only one way, and that was that was on the on the gridiron. Um, but my father had a very successful career doing that. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to play in college. That was a big part of my life. Uh, but when that was over, I was very happy to jump into, you know, my real love, which was writing. And uh, uh, I was so damn fortunate to kind of get into the the tail end of the, the, the good old days of the newspaper business and work at an old, you know, Metro Daily down in Tampa and uh, some right. of the best times I've ever had. Awesome. So writing was something that as a young person, sure. a child, that was what you wanted to do. What turned you on to that? Man, I don't know. It just... <laughs> 
you know, it's funny if you talk to me when I was, you know, 14 or 15 years old, you know, what do you want to do? And, you know, I want to grow up and be Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler. And I just like crime books. I loved Ian Fleming. I loved, you know, we talked earlier about making a Vesper cocktail. I could have probably made you a Vesper cocktail when I was 14. Uh, you know, I, I just love that world. I love that immersive, immersive world of, of being in a crime novel or being in a, you know, international adventure. And, um, you know, it just was such a, I think a great way to explore life and, and get to know, you know, places that you'd never been. And, and so I, I never, it's funny, I never really considered uh, doing anything else. You know, I, I wanted to be a journalist because I knew many of the people that I respected, like, you know, Ian Fleming or um, Chandler or, or, you know, of course, Hemingway, you know, had all been reporters. And I figured that that was the best training ground for me. But, um, you know, I never really considered another line of work. You know, I never thought about being an insurance agent or, you know, I'm going to no, become a... No plan B. There was no plan B. And, and I had many people try to explain to me, like, you know, novelist is not really an idea or career that you're going to, you know, this is not a, a good logical choice for you. But I didn't. I didn't have a plan B. And, um, you know, um, I well, think it's it worked it, out. It worked out okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it worked out all right. Sure. Let's stick with football for a second because sure. you, you were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Yeah, that was that was my, uh, uh, you know, big, big moment. Um, you know, it was it was funny. I, 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 I was more of a, um, a player that uh, was kind of a, I guess you call a pass rush specialist. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we want to get deep into football, I was, uh, you know, I was a defensive end that could never gain the weight that I needed to play on as a down lineman. I mean, now I could gain that weight probably in five days. But back at the time, you know, I just couldn't get up to the 260, 270 that I needed to be. So essentially I came down where there was, you know, something rushing the quarterback and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, so anyway, long story short is, uh, um, I can't believe it's been so long, but almost, geez, almost 30 years ago, um, you know, I was able to play in this big game and and, uh, um, get to, really put the pressure on the quarterback and then that ended up becoming the, the cover of sports illustrated when we were undefeated and it was oh, a you very can tell us what the what the big game was and what the what the you know <laughs> it was okay. back uh, it was uh um it, we were both undefeated uh, the university of florida and auburn and unfortunately it wasn't on on uh, tv at the time because we were on probation and so that's why we couldn't go to a bowl game or play for a national championship or anything like that. But uh, so it was a big game and, and we won. And um, uh, but it, it also that year was a good time to say adios to football and to, to move on to another career. I, okay. did, I didn't really think, you know, if I did have some kind of after career, I didn't see, um, you know, I, I didn't have the passion for it at that time to, to, to go pro to really, you know, you know, a lot of my co- a lot of my teammates did um, a lot of some of my teammates, in fact, uh, good friend of mine is the now the manager of the, the LA Rams and, you mentioned uh, and, that, and he was, just loved football I think he loved culturally he loved football my dad loved football after he finished playing uh, went into coaching uh, many of my teammates of course they went directly into coaching and have been very successful but uh, uh, not for me no you had to get up at like 5 a.m and look at game film and all that kind of stuff and I just uh, I liked it but I didn't I, I didn't want to make it my life well your body probably appreciates that I'm yeah, sure yeah. I still have a few injuries but but Pretty much, yeah. I'm glad I got out when I did. For anybody who's listening, Ace is not a small gentleman. <laughs> he is. I think I'm, I'm. You know, for for normal people, I think among um, you know NFL players or whatever, I would be a you know average size guy. I well, guess. what are you? Six four, six two, six six three. Okay, six, three, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've often wondered what's it, what's it like <laughs> to be that big. You know, <laughs> you, have, you have to eat a lot. It, can- 
It carries a certain weight, though. You know, like when you your presence yeah. is like, oh. But you know, you get around those guys that like you know. You think about like watching the Super Bowl. I would look like a midget next to some of those guys. I mean, my 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 size, which I was big for thirty years ago playing in sports. Now I would have been, you know, I'd be like a place kicker. Well, I don't know about that, but you probably like a running back. I mean, you know what I mean? It, I mean, now you've got, degree. Yeah, you've you got these guys now, 275, you know, 6'6", and they can run a 4'140 and all that. These guys are just phenomenal. I always, I, I did play long enough that I do have a really healthy perspective on the game when I watch it. And the, the perspective is this, is as much as I enjoyed playing and, and whatever I did in college and that kind of thing, I know the level that it takes to get up to be in the pros and that that is a whole nother level. Right. So you would never see me sitting watching the game and criticizing a player on the field saying, Oh, I could have done that. Right. Because I played long enough that I know, you know, these guys watching this up at the, you know, the sports bars or whatever. And they think, Oh yeah, I could do that. I could walk on the field. These guys would die. You know, if they get, they could not last one down, they would get killed by these people. And so uh, it gives you a healthy perspective and, and also, you know, end up, respecting these guys that do make it their life and and, yeah. and what, a, what an incredible talent they have amazing athleticism well it's probably the same way that guys that everyone who thinks that you know picks up a guitar you know they, oh well they, they look yeah. up and they're like yeah i could do that why am i i should be in a a world class uh rock and roll band well, I, i'm just the same exactly so that's everybody who picks up a guitar and starts playing stairway to heaven or <laughs> you know sweet child of mine yeah. thinks that they're they're that guitar player but you know the joke is like how many guitar players does it take to do a solo and it's 10 one to do the solo and nine to say well i could have done that better <laughs> i think it's the same thing for sports <laughs> yeah, exactly. i think it, i think really and it, and it goes to writing or anything i think that the, the really the great ones make it look easy and i think people watch it and they go oh man that's so easy and they don't realize all the work that went into it you know you watch something like the super bowl and you think oh i could go on out for that pass or whatever you couldn't have done that nobody can do that because they've done it a you know, a million times. And in the same way that, you know, for you to become a world-class guitar player, you had to do it a billion times to be able to reach that level. But it's, yeah. it's a lot of work for whatever you want to do. We're talking with Ace Atkins. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere because we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Leisure Class. We're talking with Ace Atkins today. You know, what I've admired about your just incredible discipline and dedication to the work over the past you tell me how many years now you have put out two books a year <laughs> that's true for 10 years i did it for 10 years i'm not doing it anymore <laughs> i'm done that was it but that was man, it i mean you know when it comes to what you do which is crime novels right right crime fiction um and you have your series the queen colson series which is how many how many books now it's uh, the last one, 11. 11. Read them all. F***ing great. What I hear from some, you know, maybe nose-in-the-air writers is that, oh, once you figure the formula out, you can... <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> right? Easy, you've right. heard that. You've heard yeah. that a million times. Yeah. Once you figure the formula out, it's easy. Yeah. Well, I would say that that's bullshit <laughs> i would agree i would agree i mean i, I think that the trick especially when you write the, the hardest thing for for when you're writing like a series and you're writing something revisiting that world and this, these characters is doing something new each time i mean certainly there yeah are there writers and there are there people that do kind of a formula that each book is the same but right. you know it, it, a different story sure yeah you can do that but i mean that's not really what i was interested in doing and i think that the really 
great ones, the ones that, you know, I'm not to that level, but the ones that I admire, um, you know, people like James Lee Burke or Elmore Leonard, as they come in and they bring it something new every time, something is different. It's, it's their signature is their own, their voice is their own, but there is no formula, you know, especially when you talk about somebody like Elmore Leonard. I mean, there's just, you know, it's, it's, it's chaos, you know, it's anarchy in his books and it's, it's genius. But, um, yeah, I think, yeah, for certainly, you know, when you write crime fiction or whatever, as people think that it's, uh, you know, you know, if I was writing a book about a guy finding himself and, you know, and <laughs> he was torn and living in Brooklyn and trying to find himself through, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever, you yeah. know, skydiving and through it. It was, you know, I think that's the thing that, you know, in, in crime fiction, there is crime, but, you know, um, all great books have crime in it. You know, everything is a crime, you know, um, you know, when, a, you know, William Faulkner wrote Sanctuary. I mean, a great, right. great crime novel. Which, which you turned me on to. Yeah, yeah. And I'm still struggling with Faulkner, but yeah, working well, on it. Yeah, just you got to drink more bourbon. And, you know, <laughs> it's just, you know, and F, F. Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, Great Gatsby, terrific crime novel. You know, there's a crime at the heart of it. You know, all good books have that 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 um, movement, that engine that's running things. But um, you know, just being a crime writer. There's no limitation in that. The limitation is only upon the author themselves. Just the fact that is writing about some criminal aspect, you know, if there is a limitation to it, it's not in the form, it's to the person who's writing it because people have proven, you know, um, you know, Faulkner takes a very strict kind of crime book, something like, um, uh, you know, Intruder in the Dust, and nobody can do that. But it wasn't a limitation in the form. It was a limitation in the murder story. It was, uh, you know, he took something and, you know, Faulkner could have, you know, he, he took a, a horror story, you know, something like uh, Rose for Emily. And it was just something that was going to be published in a, you know, an anthology of, of, you know, creepy tales or whatever. And he writes something genius like Rose for Emily, you know, so there's wow. no limitation in yeah. the genre. There's a limitation only on the talent of the author. Beautiful. Yeah. So one of the games that I, you know, that I play with my friends is influences and inspirations. Yeah, I, I think in, in it, it's not necessarily all authors. I mean, a lot of them are, right. are, are musicians and musicians who are, you know, great writers. And, you know, um, you know, for somebody like very early on, I discovered this great correlation between great crime uh, writers and blues artists. You know, they're all writing about the same thing. They're writing about betrayal and murder and people turning their back. And the voice is the same, you know. So you read something like Hammett and then you it's one degree of separation from Dashiell Hammett, right? And so those kind of two worlds really merged. And then also just the, the flow of the language, the flow of the words, uh, the, the beautiful imagery, you know, that somebody like Robert Johnson or Muddy Waters was able to, uh, you know, put down. Uh, that stuff had a huge impact on me at a very early age. So, so, so that stuff, uh, you know, I would say top five, you know, guys like John D. McDonald, um, Hammett, Chandler, Robert Parker, of course, Elmore Leonard, but then at the same time, you know, Elmore James, you know, um, you know, uh, Freddie King, you know, that stuff. I I, I learned a lot about just, you know, the flow of language and found out very quickly that a lot of people probably weren't into uh, uh, the history of blues music and detective novels the way I was. You know, I, I I still to this day have a very probably limited fan base with those books, but the people who get it, they really dig it. They, they really love it. Uh, but what was, you know, the name, what was the name of that, that book? Uh, wrote a book called Crossroad Blues. Uh, wrote another book called Dark Into the Street. It was kind of this, you know, tour of black music in America. You know, started off with Depression era blues, and the next book was about you know Chicago and the electrification of the blues, and and you know Muddy plugging it in, and and then you know then we go into soul music in Memphis, and then eventually I did a fourth book that was about rap coming out of the Deep South. 
and the whole evolution of, of the music. So I love that stuff. I love music history, uh, you know, and, and again, I've learned so much uh, just on pacing, rhythm, imagery. And, and I, I say this in probably every talk I, I, I give, which is I think anybody, and I think, again, going back to the football analogy, is, yeah, yeah I could do that. Yeah, oh, sure. I, yeah, <laughs> oh, you got to be kidding me. But, um, you know, anybody can sit down at a, at a keyboard and make people talk and walk. You know, guy enters the bar, this guy says this, this does, but that's not writing, you know, in the same way that, you know, somebody can plug in a guitar and play a few notes or whatever. Uh, that doesn't mean they can write a song. So, so I have learned a lot from, from, you know, musicians and and authors alike. Yeah. That was one of the things when we first met and got a chance to hang out it, your depth of, of musical knowledge and appreciation. And it's not just narrow. Like you just talked about deep blues and, and rap. And it is a crucial element, certainly in the Quinn Colson series. Music is like throughout it, and you've created playlists. Sure, and and I think that you know those guys. You know, and first of all, like in, in respect to uh, my friends who are deep music writers, you know, those guys leave me in the dust. You know, people like you know Scott Beretta, and right. you know, I'll reference you know. Elmore James or Tampa Red or whatever, but he'll know some deep cut from a guy that only recorded, you know, one song <laughs> back in 48, you know, so yeah. I'm, I'm a novice at this stuff. Um, that was kind of what I wanted, wanted to do was the, the earlier books, uh, you know, was deeply steeped in, in African American music and, and talking about blues and talking about, you know, rap or, or you know, uh, soul music. And so uh, I really wanted the aesthetic of the Quinn Colson books. And this sounds really odd, but to feel like 1970s country. And so that's really where I was drawing upon, you know, Waylon okay. Jennings and, you know, right. I wanted to, um, you know, Merle Haggard and, you know, 60s and 70s and, and trying to get that kind of feel, um, you know. Well, uh, you just tell the folks exactly what the Quinn Colson series sort of encapsulates. Give me the, give yeah, me I mean, the it's, it's elevator a, pitch. Yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, it's a very simple premise. And I think that that's, again, is, is what a writer, things I've learned from music, is to have very um, compact ideas, something that's uh, very easily understood, but then to do it in a very heartfelt and very soulful way. I mean, it's, it's not the, you don't want a tricky premise. You want something that is very simple for people to understand, but emotionally, hopefully has more resonance and more depth to it. Uh, but the story is simple. Um, you know, it was just, I had the idea of a guy that had been off to war, comes home to his small town and he finds the the small town unrecognizable. Uh, he finds that his girlfriend has moved on. Uh, he finds out that his community has been taken over by corruption and drugs and that kind of stuff. And it's about him turning the tables and it's, you know, very inspired by a lot of 1970s kind of cinema, like Billy Jack or, say. Yeah. or walking tall, you know? Um, but you know, I wanted it to almost feel like a Johnny cash song. You know, I wanted to feel like, you know, uh, don't take those guns to town, you know, and right. that, that, that kind of, that feel of, you know, that just simplicity of a guy coming in and trying to, you know, establish order. And then, you know, That's then great. I can get in and talk about all kinds of stuff. I could talk about religious hypocrisy and social issues and racism and, and all that. Yeah, kind of you stuff touch the, Throughout the series, your characters, you touch on all of that, which makes it, you've created this world and I, you know, me living here yeah. <laughs> now sort of understand where some of the, Sure. Some of the spots are that you've based these things on, but it's a it's a fascinating, you know, contained world. It is, and it, it I think it's um, you know kind of at a crossroads now that you know um, 
I think there's a point maybe 10, 15 years ago where we tried to understand, you know, rural America and we tried to understand the, you know, uh, people and write about something that was a little bit different from what we see on TV. And now, uh, you know, I think it's getting harder to kind of understand some of the, the perceptions and the ideas and the ingrained racism. Um, you know, as a kid, I always thought things were getting better. And I always thought mm-hmm. that things were changing. And I always thought things, you know, living in Alabama, you know, you'd see, um, you know, uh, images from Selma from the 60s that that stuff was, uh, you know, newsreel footage that you believe that happened a long time ago and things have been corrected. Uh, and I don't think if I'd been talking to you 10 years ago, I would have said that, you know, that course was going to change. But uh it's getting harder and harder to find um, the goodness that yeah. I, I used to find, and that's okay. that's a little bit little, little bit disturbing. None of this happened that long ago. Yeah, yeah. And when you say it looks like newsreel footage, I think that's the sort of mindset that, like, when I was a kid, and I'd turn on the TV and would see film of World War II. Yeah. Right? It was like, wow, that was a long time ago. Sure. And, I mean, for me, being in high school, you know, MLK hadn't been – you know, hadn't been gone not even 20 years, you know, and, right. and I, I would look at that stuff and it was kind of a contained story that it was something that was over, that it was a battle that had been fought, but it's a weird time, man. It's, a, you know, yeah. writing about the South. Uh, I think that when I first started writing these books 10 years ago, you know, some of it w- I felt was kind of a retro look at the, the worst of the deep South. Um, but now I feel like it's very contemporary, but the same kind of issues Faulkner was writing about back in the the thirties and forties, um, they're all here, you know, just like he said, you know, the past is never dead. I'd like to thank Ace Atkins for stopping by today and being a member of the leisure class. Coming up is shake it up our cocktail segment with Brad behind the bar, our resident booze hound working his magic. Don't go away. Well, it's time for this segment we call Shake It Up, our deep dive into the science, inspiration, and artistry in the making of creative craft cocktails. My co-host is Brad Johnson, a musician friend of mine with a shared passion for the good stuff. And we're going to talk tequilas and margaritas this evening. Brad, what you got? Yes. Well, the platform is simple, and there's so many different things that you could do with it. And, fun fact, the margarita is the most ordered cocktail in America. Now, they may not all be good margaritas. You could be using the, the pre-bottled sweet and sour stuff, which, you guys, uh, making a margarita is so, so simple. If you have a lime and some agave syrup or some simple syrup, you don't even need that. I'll get to that in a second. And some Cointreau or an orange liqueur and some tequila, so make sure it's 100% blue agave tequila. Make, make sure that it's nice and, and, and a good quality tequila. You can make yourself a margarita. The classic margarita would consist of two ounces of tequila, three quarters of an ounce of Cointreau, or your orange liqueur of choice. Jack, you've talked about Patron orange liqueur, which yeah, is Citron. an inexpensive good. Yep. It's great quality, and and uh, it's, it's a go-to. And three quarters of an ounce of fresh lime juice and a quarter of an ounce of agave syrup or simple syrups. Now that's, that's the platform for the classic margarita as we know it. Now, some people may not like it that sweet and you could omit, omit the agave syrup and just use that, that the triple sec or the orange liqueur to act as your sweetener. 
right? Which I think you do, Jack, yeah. right? Because yeah, I'll get I like, into my margarita <laughs> my way in a minute. So <laughs> right. So so if you like it dry, you could use those, that same profile, omit the syrup, and and it'll still be you know on the drier side, but still you know plenty plenty sweet and balanced with the, that tang of the lime juice and that sweetness of the uh, of the orange liqueur. Right now. Um, why we love this so much is that you can, you, you could literally do anything with this, right? If you like mezcal, you, you could swap out the tequila and put in mezcal, which I, I typically do, or you can split the tequila. You got two ounces there, right? You could do one ounce of tequila and one ounce of mezcal, and you can swap out the lime juice for a different juice of your choice like jack you've espoused the glory of the ruby red grapefruit yeah many many times and (laughs) look i love i love a a lime juice classic margarita but man you swap in a ruby red anytime and and i i love it i I prefer that any day um so you know and and the choices are endless and you know the, the recipe that you're seeing there is maybe a little on the short side you know, two ounces and a little bit of juice, but you could be going to a Mexican restaurant and and wanting like a, a plate of nachos or a uh, a, a nice big uh, enchilada platter or something like that. And you may want your margarita a, a little bit longer, as we say, you know, so it would have a little bit more tequila and a little bit more juice. And, and therefore you can drink your cocktail while you're eating your food. Whereas, you know, the, the classic margarita, as I've outlined, is a bit on the, you know, a bit on the quicker side. So you're going to go through that pretty darn quick if you drink like Jack and I do. So, <laughs> so you, can, you, can, you, can, you can add more ingredients right. and, 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 and get some life out of that bad boy. Like, yeah. like I'm doing tonight. I'm, I'm having a long, a long, a long, way. It looks long like a, yeah. drink. Beautiful. And I start with some fresh jalapeno, slice it up, maybe like four little jalapeno coins and four raspberries and about four dashes of Aztec chocolate bitters. I I used Fee Brothers for this, but there's there's other Mexican chocolate bitters that you can use. So you're getting the heat from the jalapeno, you got the raspberry and you've got the chocolate and you muddle that in your your shaker. And then I use three ounces of, of fresh squeezed blood orange juice, one ounce lime, half ounce of agave syrup, and three quarters ounce Cointreau. I know Jack's going, this is too sweet for me. <laughs> no, no. Um, but you can make it drier. Uh, one ounce tequila and two ounces of mezcal. And so the reason for the raspberry is because those blood oranges have that kind of raspberry note to it. And I wanted the fresh raspberry muddled in there to kind of play with the blood orange, and then the chocolate bitters, you know, who doesn't love orange and chocolate and raspberry and chocolate? So that makes a lot of sense. And then you get the spiciness of the jalapeno. And I I salt the rim with Sal Gusano to give it an, another layer going on. And, oh, and man. you got Sangra y Fuego. And I'll post this up to your Please, Instagram man. account. Please, man. I mean, I... Not, now... the recipe. <laughs> but it is, I've, I've, I spent a lot of time toiling around with the balance of this. 
And it is uh, it is a delightfully balanced drink. When executed properly, you can taste every single flavor note within there on kind of different levels. You know, it's it's like being in the studio and listening to playback on on a mix you just did, and 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 the drums are sitting over here, and the bass is like it's like you got that sound stage of separation going on. It's oh, beautiful. beautiful, man. I gotta try it, man. It sounds absolutely delicious. And, yeah, man, I love it. <laughs> it's fantastic. I actually had, you know, made a trip to Jalisco and visited some distilleries. And I was really fortunate to watch the process from the chopping of the agave plant. So jealous. The roasting of the pina and oh, then man. the mash and all the way through to be able to like taste it, you know, at the end not obviously the same mix but you know tequila from the same um, distiller and what I found fascinating too was because I was able to to taste the roasted pina before it you know they sliced off some after it came out of the fire so I was able to taste it and it's interesting because they call it the pina because it it looks like a pineapple pineapple. so The agave plant is this, you know, huge. I mean, it's like six feet, eight, ten feet tall. It takes six to ten years to to get to maturity to be able to use it for this stuff. And they chop off these leaves that look like... With those those long, like, paddle-like blades, right? They're super cool looking. And they chop off those large stems and they take this, what looks like a pineapple, and they roast it. And I was able to, like... Sliced off a piece of it, and and I got to taste it, and it was like, oh, <laughs> that's, that's what's, what's in there. This beautiful, sweet, citrusy, you know, sweet. It's the, all those combinations. So when you make a cocktail like what you're talking about, there's all this complementary and contrasting notes that just delights the palate. And yeah. and if you're you know into drinking. <laughs> I guess maybe I should just like stop there. <laughs> <laughs> if you're into drinking, if you're into drinking, stop. <laughs> That's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. This is Jack Sonny, your host, saying thanks for listening. Stay safe, be kind, and always remember hug them while you can. See you next time.